Well, amen. Well, good morning, church. My name is Mike Lindstedt. I serve as the family pastor here at the Field Church, in case I haven't met you. But let's open up our Bibles to the book of Romans. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through chapter 9, verse 23 today. And it is a continuation of the last time that I preached where we went through Romans chapter 8, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1, all the way up to chapter 8. I didn't quite get to finish all of that, so I am going to, at some point, get back to Romans 7 and 8, but I'll summarize the main teaching uh, today to get us up to speed. But we're going to be discussing one of the most foundational doctrines in the entirety of Scripture. In fact, it is the backbone of everything that we believe, and to get this wrong will mean that at some other point, we will begin to believe things or it's likely that we will begin to believe things that the scripture does not in fact teach. And so God's eternal decree is the name of this doctrine. If you were to look it up in theology textbooks, this is where you will find what we're discussing today. But before we get to our main text, let me just take a moment just to get us up to speed as to where the apostle Paul is in his overall presentation of the gospel in the book of Romans. And you can turn to chapter one with me and just follow along as I get us there. Chapter one in the book of Romans, verses 16 and 17, give us the theme of the book. And they say this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. So this is Paul's theme. This is the thread that runs throughout the entirety of the book, the righteousness of God. This is a description of God's essence, who he is, everything that he does as well is described as being righteous. He is righteousness and he does righteousness and he also loves righteousness and he requires righteousness from his creation. And that poses a significant problem. No one in this room, no one in all of history is righteous in and of themselves. We've all fallen from grace. We've fallen from the original state that we were in. And Paul goes on to then in chapter one, verse 18 through chapter three, verse 20, to discuss how God has revealed his righteousness, particularly by the law, by the giving of his righteous requirement. Just turn to chapter three. And we'll look at verses 9 through 19. But Paul's effectively argued that because God is righteous, this means the whole world stands condemned and under the wrath of God. Look at chapter 3, verses 9 through 19. He says, what then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. For there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known." There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law so that every mouth may be shut and all the world may become accountable to God. Paul says that there is not a single human being that has ever existed that has even sought God. And every single human being that has ever existed is under the just punishment from the righteous God. There's a man named Paul Washer, who's a preacher. He said, the most terrifying reality in all history is this fact that God is righteous. And he has given us his law to show us his righteousness. But this law has an effect on us. It it shows us something as well. Look at verse 20 in chapter three. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. 
Here it is. Underline this if you haven't done so already. For through the law comes the what? The knowledge of sin. This exposes the, the great need for an alien righteousness, as it was called to by the reformers, an imputed righteousness, an external righteousness that has to be imputed to us in order for us to satisfy the righteous requirement of God's holy law. And in verse 21 of chapter three, Paul presents that righteousness. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith for a demonstration of his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Look at verse 24. This is the first mention of justification being a gift. This is the first time that Paul refers to eternal life, in other words, as a gift. And then in chapter 5, go with me there to chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. After Paul exposes the, the tremendous need that we have for an, an imputed righteousness, he then discusses the fact that we have already been imputed something, that's sin, but that we can receive the gift of righteousness through imputation. Look at verses 17 through 21 here. After Paul gets done expounding the doctrine of original sin, he says this, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, all men does not mean every human being on the face of the earth. It simply means Jew and Gentile. That's the context of, of the whole entire book of Romans. Verse 19, for as though... As for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be appointed righteous. Now the law came in so that trans the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is where we get the understanding that God's grace is greater than our sin and that we can receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ through imputation that comes by faith in him alone. Now, that word impute, which is in this section here, is actually a business term. It's a business term. It means to credit to one's account. We all have an account with God. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but we have an account with God and we're all, in, uh, we're all deficient as far as our ability to pay what we owe God. And so if you wanted to see this word used in the business sense, briefly just turn to Philemon, the book of Philemon. And we're gonna look at the 18th verse. It's the same word here used for imputation. In verse 18 of the very tiny letter of Philemon, Paul says this, but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, then charge that to my account. That's the word. That's the word for imputation. Charge that to my account. So what we need charged to our account is Christ's righteousness. This is Paul's entire argument in the book of Romans up until this point. And then through chapter six, seven, and eight, Paul expounds the doctrine of sanctification, which is once that this righteousness has been imputed to you, it then necessarily creates righteousness in you and then through you. There's no such thing as a wicked Christian because of 
the doctrine of sanctification. Now, we all are at different points in our understanding of God's holiness, of God's righteousness. We all are certainly in different points of being righteous in our external acts, and we're never going to be made perfect on this side of eternity. But there is no such thing as a wicked Christian because God's righteousness is in us. It is producing righteousness in us, through us, out into the world. And his two main points then in chapter six are this. You must die to sin and then you must live to God. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans six and seven. You must die to sin and you must live to God. All of that is accomplished by the spirit of Christ or the spirit of righteousness that has been imputed to you. Let's take a look at chapter eight, verses one through 14. Paul, summing up his argument on sanctification under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then says this in chapter eight, verse one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, that's good news. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells within you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are under obligation, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. For as many as are being led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So the great question in the book of Romans is this, how does a holy God forgive unholy man? How does the righteousness of God come to dwell in unrighteous humanity? How do the enemies of God become the children of God? In other words, how do sinners become saints? Because this is how God refers to us. The answer, it is only by justification, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that any of those questions can be properly answered. It is by grace, through faith, in the one. Now, the next question that immediately springs forward from that answer is this. Well, how does a sinner who does not seek after God, according to Romans 3, come to possess this faith? Is this faith internally generated and then offered up to God? Or is it externally generated and then imputed or given to sinners? That's the question. How can someone who does not seek God all of a sudden seek God? That's the question we must answer today. Now, the answer that most Christians will give you, and it's not wrong, is that it's internally generated and offered to God. And they would use Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10 to answer this. They would say this, and you guys will probably be able to say this by memory. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? That's right. For with the heart, with the heart, a person believes leading to righteousness and with the mouth, he confesses leading to salvation. And you're not wrong if you answer it that way. However, 
this is not the full answer. It is actually inadequate and it leaves out what precedes it in Romans 8, 28 through Romans chapter nine. You see, if you were to ask the apostle Paul the question, how do sinners come to possess faith? Well, then he would add to that answer that certain persons have already been selected by God from before the foundation of the world to receive this faith as a gift for the ultimate purpose of glorifying God's name through being conformed into the image of his son. And this faith then results in eternal life. Now, the doctrine that we're going to be learning over the next two Sundays is referred to as God's eternal decree. And this provides us with the full answer of how people who do not seek God on their own initiative come to seek God. Let's open to Romans 8, 28, and we're going to read 8, 28 through 9, 24. The doctrine is God's eternal decree. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He indeed, he who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. And I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. But through Isaac, your seed will be named. That is, the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, so that the promise of God according to election would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall, the, shall, what shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Well, you will say to me then, 
Well, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction? And in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has also called, not from the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. How many of you have actually read chapter nine of Romans before? Wonderful. What we see in our text here is God's eternal decree. We have three divisions of this section from 828 to 924, and they're gonna be up on the board for you now. The first division is God's purpose stated. God's eternal decree is stated in those famous verses right there, 828 through 30. God's purpose is then celebrated in Romans 831 through 39. And then God's purpose is delineated in chapter nine, verses one through 24. That's the division of our text. But first, let's begin with what, what is God's eternal decree? Just a simple definition. Here it is. It's what God purposed to do before he created anything. Whenever you go out to build a house, what do you do before you start building? Create a plan. God's no different. He had a plan and he's only had one plan as we're gonna see today. The purpose of God's electing love, which is stated in Romans 8, 28 through 30, has very much to do with his overall purpose in creation, which is this. God's purpose in creation concerning the elect were to conform them to the image of Christ in order to glorify his holy name by spreading the image of Christ throughout the earth. In other words, God's plan in creation was to glorify his name through the Son and by saving some and by judging others. God's holiness is the absolute aggregate manifestation of all of his attributes. Not an overemphasis of love, not an overemphasis of compassion, but perfectly balanced with justice and wrath. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we serve. He is who he is, and he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. But sin did not take him by surprise, as we're going to find out. He did not have to change the plan after Adam and Eve sinned. So let's look at our text now, and let's begin to exposit some of these critical words here. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Underline that word purpose. Purpose, foreknowledge, and predestined all have the same Greek prefix in the word pro, P-R-O. So purpose is the word prothesis. It literally means a setting forth in advance for a specific purpose. Pro, beforehand. Thesis, purpose. He had a beforehand purpose. And it includes calling people to himself, according to verse 28. And that purpose was good. That purpose was good. Notice what it says again. Look at your text. All things work together for what? Good. Be assured, Christian, God's plan is a good plan. So that's the first word that we have to look at. It is prothesis, and that is that word purpose. Pro is the critical element. It literally means beforehand. Then foreknowledge in verse 29, because those whom he foreknew, pro gnosko, to know beforehand, literally he knew them before he created them. He chose them before he ever made them according to his predetermined plan, which is clear in the Greek. Now this word foreknowledge describes God's eternal counsel. And it includes all that he has considered and purposed to do in human history. Now, this is critical for you to get. God does not look down the annals of history and go, oh, you're going to choose me. I'm going to choose you. Nobody would have a problem with that. Paul would not have to bring up verse 14 in chapter nine. Is there any unrighteousness with God? 
If that's in fact how God saved people, this would be a very short section because we would not have to deal with, is there actually any unrighteousness with God? Nobody would have qualms with that if God just chose those who chose him. That's not what the Bible tells us. It tells us very clearly that God has a plan that he made before he started creating and some people were selected out. We're gonna continue to, to build that. And that's where I'll leave it for now. This foreknowledge is about God knowing what he would do, not knowing what you would do. The next word is predestined. Comes after foreknowledge. He also predestined, pro or itso, to predetermine, to mark out beforehand. It occurs six times in the New Testament. And every reference to, it always refers to the predestination of events or peoples by God before time ever was created. Now you have to understand this. This word is never one time in the entirety of scripture used to mean that God has predestined certain people to hell. He has never, ever predestined anyone to hell. This is what scripture teaches us. Do not go in your mind to try to philosophize this. Paul is not preaching fatalism. Now it seems to us that, well, if he selected some for heaven, then he must necessarily select some for hell. But that's not what the scriptures tell us. Now, this doctrine will challenge your fidelity to the doctrine of inspiration. Because many, many commentators have written this off, this whole chapter. That's just Paul's opinion. Oh, well, this whole book might just be someone's opinion then. So we are walking very much on holy ground. And we have to approach it a particular way. But it's important that you know at this juncture that predestination is never used about people being predestined for hell, not once. It is only used, it only applies to saved people. And it should be a comfort to you. In fact, look down at Romans 8, 31 through 39 for the second division of our outline. The fact that we have been predestined, if you're in Christ, is the only reason that Paul can have the confidence that he has in Romans 31 through 39. What shall we say then to these things? What things? Romans 8, 28 through 30. Those things. <laughs> what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, not all humanity, the ones whom he foreknew from before the foundation of the world. If he is for us, who can be against us? Your salvation cannot be removed by other people. That's verse 31. It cannot be removed by God. That's verse 32. It cannot be removed by Satan. That's verse 33. And it cannot be removed by Christ who intercedes for us. That's verse 34. And most personally, it cannot be removed by you because you didn't generate it in yourself. If I generated my own salvation, I'd have lost it the second I walked out the building. And if you think you would not have, you're in the right place. No, church, this doctrine of God's eternal decree is the only reason you can have confidence in the fact that you will be saved. Now, are there some hard to understand truths here? Yes, and we're gonna get into those now. But know this, that phrase in verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? Paul is reasoning from that truth that we're talking about today. Now, chapter nine, Paul has to deal with a huge elephant in the room question. Well, great, Paul. I feel very secure now. He would say, that's good. You should. But I have one question for you, Paul. What happened to Israel? Weren't they the chosen people of God? What happened to them? And he's going to answer that question. He says in verse six, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Not all Israel is Israel. He says it in my version here, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. But before we get into the exposition of this chapter, we have to 
understand how we need to approach this, okay? Number one, you need to rid yourself of any preconceived prejudices and bias that stem from previous belief about God's purposes and salvation. We're reading the word of God to you and expounding the word of God to you. Please rid yourself of any feelings, any preconceived prejudices, whatever you think about God that doesn't line up with this, lay that aside. Number two, do not approach this subject philosophically. Do not approach this subject philosophically. The human mind is utterly inadequate to comprehend God's eternal decree in its entirety. Philosophy is man's attempt to understand the world. But we're not talking about anything created here now. We're talking about the uncreated one and what he has decided to do. Just look at Job chapter 11. It's up on the screen, verses seven through eight. Can you find the depths of God? Can you find the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Psalm 50, verse 21, the Lord speaks himself. You thought that I was just like you, is what he says in verse 21 of Psalm 50. You thought that I was just like you. Isaiah 55, verses eight through 11, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are from the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And even in Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, the apostle Paul says this, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So we must not approach this philosophically. There is a great chasm between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of man. And in fact, turn with me to Romans, I'm sorry, to 1 Corinthians chapter 18, verse 31. 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18 in 1 Corinthians. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever, I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased by this through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We must only look to the scriptures for our answers to the problems, seeming problems that will be put forth in this text. And we must approach it with the utmost humility, realizing that we cannot know everything that God knows in its entirety. He is incomprehensible. And so be encouraged if you don't fully comprehend the doctrine of God's eternal decree. If you find yourself a bit confused to a degree, then you're understanding it rightly. Turn to Romans 11 again and look at how Paul ends this section. Verses 33 through 35. 
This is where Paul ended up. He didn't continue on in an intellectual philosophical argument. He threw up his hands in adoration and praise. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. So now that we have that in our minds and we can approach this text rightly, let's go back to chapter nine, verse one, to see God's purpose delineated. In verses one through five, we simply see God's uh, chosen man, the apostle Paul, and his Christ-like pastoral heart. Notice this. Paul has just told us that God has chosen some from before the foundation of the world. What is Paul's response? He's not arrogant. He's not full of pride. His heart bleeds. In fact, look at verse three. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ. He's not indifferent to this. He loves his people and he desperately wants them to be saved, but he understands God's plan. Let's focus our attention now on verses six through eight. Paul's claim in verse six needs to be underlined in your Bible because this is the, the claim that carries on throughout the next couple of chapters. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. But through Isaac, your seed will be named. That is the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as seed. Remember, Paul has to deal with this elephant in the room question. Well, you're telling me I'm secure in my salvation, and that's true. But what happened to Israel? I, I'm confused about that. Weren't they selected by God as well? There's Paul's answer. The nation was selected to be the, the recipient of the divine favor, but not the entire nation was selected unto salvation. This is Paul's argument. This is Paul's argument. Therefore, he can confidently say in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. He never promised to save every Israelite ever. He never promised to save every human being ever. So therefore, not all national Israel is the elect of God. And he clarifies this in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He clarifies the categorical distinction there. The children of the flesh. These are national Israel. Do you know Abraham had many other children that are not a part of the covenant people of God? In fact, go and study your Old Testament. He had a wife named Keturah who had many wives. I'm sorry, who had many children. She had no wives. But if it's all the children of the flesh that came through Abraham, well, then that means that they're all going to be saved. But they don't even believe God. They don't even acknowledge God. So it can't be all the children of the flesh. It can't even be just national Israel. They're not the children of God. This is what he says. He says, no, 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 no. The true Israel are those who are the children of the promise. It is those who are considered as seed. And then he goes on in verses 9 through 13 to give us many examples of this word of promise from Scripture. Look down at your text from verses 9 through 13. For this is the word of promise. Okay, so what word is Paul referring to in verse 6? Here it is. Here it is. And this encapsulates much of the Old Testament teaching about God's promise in Genesis 3.15 to bring a redeemer to redeem us from the curse. Romans 9, chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. For this is the word of promise, quote, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. That's from Genesis 18, 14, verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that, underline that, the prothesis of God, the same word used in 828, according to his choice or his election, some translations say, it is the Greek word eklognai, compound word meaning out from and to, lego speaking to a conclusion. It refers to a selection out of many, over and given over to a particular outcome. You know, the same word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of David, selecting five smooth stones out of the brook and then using that to take down the giant. It's the same exact word. 
So he goes on in verse 12 to quote Genesis 25, 23. And then he quotes Malachi chapter one, verses two through three. And why does he do this? He does this for this reason, to reveal that the teaching that he is putting forward here under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit is not inconsistent with the teaching of the Old Testament. And he does this progressively throughout chapter nine, chapter 10, and chapter 11. He must show this. He must show this. Paul is a lover of the Jews, not a hater of the Jews. He's a lover of the Old Testament scripture. He doesn't think that it bears no significance to this New Testament that we live in now. No, in fact, quite the opposite. So he must show that this teaching that he's putting forward is not inconsistent with the Old Testament teaching. So the first objection then in verse 14, look down at your Bible. You know, Paul foresaw this objection. Is God unrighteous? Literally in the Greek, is God not just? He says he is. Is he not just? This seems unjust to me. How could he love Esau? How could he love Jacob but hate Esau? How could he do that before they were even born? This seems unjust. It can't be right. But remember, you know you've got the right exposition if this is the question that's coming into your mind. If it wasn't this way, Paul would not have to deal with this. If God just chose those who chose him, sweet, let's go home. That's wonderful. If God chose those who were good enough in his sight, oh man, I got to work very hard. You see, it's none of those things. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God glorifying his holy name through his son and then conforming those whom he chose from before the foundation of the world to be the temple of his own very presence. Those people to be conformed into the image of his son. That's the gospel. Now, getting back to the first objection, is God not just? What does Paul say there? May it never be. He says this all throughout the book of Romans. This is megenetoi in the Greek. It is the strongest Greek negative available in the Greek language. Cursed be the thought. No, no, no. It couldn't be that way, right? God's not unjust. Therefore, if he seems unjust, there's something wrong, not with him, but with me. I have trouble understanding what's going on here. Look at what he says next. In verses 15 through 18, God, or, or, or um, the apostle Paul, appeals to God's own free will. Let's look at what he says. For God says, that's what that word he is referring to. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it, meaning the dispensation of God's mercy and compassion, that does not depend on the one who wills, makes a decision, or the one who runs. In the Greek, it means the one who exerts a tremendous amount of effort. But, look at your text, verse 16, on God who has mercy. It's all because of God's mercy that any of us are saved. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you and in order that my name might be proclaimed throughout the entire earth. Now, we need to be very careful with our interpretation of this verse. Because in the English, it does, not, it, it does not convey the meaning that it does in the Hebrew, which is where Paul's quoting from, nor does it convey the meaning in the Greek. When you read that superficially, it sounds like, oh, well, God literally created Pharaoh so he could destroy him. But that's not what that word raised you up means. That word literally has the idea of not overthrowing you. In other words, he, God has allowed or God has caused even Pharaoh to get to this point so that God may get glory over Pharaoh. Now let's turn to Exodus chapter nine. Exodus chapter nine, 
verses 13 through 17, where Paul is quoting this from. God is not unrighteous. If you know anything about Pharaoh, you know he was not a righteous man. He was wicked beyond all comprehension. He himself thought he was a higher God than Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. And if you've studied the Exodus account, you know that God gave Pharaoh ample time to repent. In fact, by the time that we get to Exodus 9, what we're looking at now, God has approached Pharaoh through his servant Moses seven times saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh seven times said, who is this God of the Hebrews who approaches me? I think God's going to have something to do about that. Now, let's look at verses 13 through 17. And Yahweh said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh. And you shall say to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues against your heart and against your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none or no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had sent forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been wiped out from the earth. But here's the verse that Paul quotes. But indeed, for this reason, I have caused you to stand in order to show you my power and in order to recount my name through all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting go. He says, in other words, the only reason I have not wiped you out, you little speck of humanity, is so that I may show off my power in you who continue to exalt yourself against me and my people. That's what that means. I'm going to give that. I'm going to try it again. Let's see if it works here. So when it says, for this purpose, I have raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you, it does not mean that God created Pharaoh to sin nor does it mean he created him for hell. Here's what we need to understand about mankind in general. God made man upright, says in Ecclesiastes 7:29, but man messed it up, to put it in the translation of the message version of the Bible. Literally, that's what it says. God made man true and upright, but man messed it up. So who, who screwed up everything? Was it God or was it man? Adam and Eve voluntarily gave up their free will that they had. And by free will, I mean they had the ability to choose God or to choose another. They voluntarily gave that up and thrust all of humanity into bondage to sin. Romans already has explained this in Romans chapter five. This is the imputation of sin. This is the doctrine of original sin. God did not force Adam and Eve to sin, nor has he forced any human being ever to sin. He does not coerce people to sin. That is man's own voluntary decision every single time. This is why the word predestination is never used in the entire scripture to reference people being made to go to hell. Nobody goes to hell except for those who choose to go there. This is what the Bible teaches. And you know what? We would all choose hell over God if it weren't for God first choosing us. What did Bo read this morning? Did it say God loves us because we first loved him? No, it says he first loved us while we were his enemies. You know, it's crazy just to think God made his own enemies. <laughs> you ever thought about that? God made his own enemies whom he actually bestows tremendous amounts of 
grace on, through common grace. People who hate God to his face consistently all throughout their life still get the blessings of a beautiful day, get the blessings of marriage, get the blessings of having dignity through work, get the blessings of life. And yet they deserve none of it. So we need to understand first and foremost, who's at fault here. It's not God. It's not God. God is not unrighteous to send people to hell. Look at verse 18, chapter nine. So then God, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. How does God harden people? Well, I'll mention three ways. Number one, God removes his restraining influence on evil in mankind and towards Satan and demons. Look at, um, let's go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter two. God removes his restraining influence on evil. 2 Thessalonians chapter two, verses six and seven tell us this. Speaking of um, the evil of the, the mystery of lawlessness and the antichrist, and you know what restrains him now, the Antichrist, so that in his time, he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. God's restraining influence on evil is also mentioned in Genesis chapter six. Go to Genesis chapter six, verse three. Genesis chapter six, verse three, as evil is increasing on the earth and the thoughts and intentions of man heart are only evil continually, God says in verse three, my spirit will not strive with man forever. I'm not gonna do this anymore. Judgment's coming. It's the same thing he did with Pharaoh. I've only allowed you to get to this point, Pharaoh, so that I can reveal my power over you. And how does he re remove his restraining influence on evil in relation to Satan, go to the book of Job. Job chapter one. Job chapter one, verses six through 12. Now it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh and Satan also came among them. And Yahweh said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking on it. Then Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And Satan answered Yahweh and said, does Job fear God without cause? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the works of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But send forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face, God. Then Yahweh said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only do not set forth your hand toward him. So Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh. The hedge that was set around Job by God was then removed and evil was allowed to come at Job. And it came, if you know the story of Job, it came after him. The second way that God hardens is through mankind's own continual rejection of the truth. Go back to Romans. Let's just look at Romans chapter one for the sake of time. And we'll look at Romans 1, 18 through 19, as well as Hebrews. Romans chapter one, verses 18 through 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here it is. Who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The word in the Greek denotes an active opposition to the truth. It's voluntary, in other words. It's voluntary because it flows out of their own heart, which Jeremiah 17 tells us that the heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's wicked. Go to Hebrews chapter three. Hebrews chapter three. This is a most important verse. Hebrews chapter three, verses 12 through 13. Hebrews chapter three, verses 12 through 13. See to it, brothers, 
that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Men suppress the truth in unrighteousness and they harden themselves. By the way, I forgot to mention this, but in the Exodus account, it says 10 times that Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart and it says 10 times that Pharaoh hardened his heart. The third and final way that I'll mention today is how God hardens people is that he abandons sinners to their own sin. We read that in Romans chapter one when I went through it, but in verses 24, 26 through 28, the phrase is consistent. Because they chose to worship the created thing rather than the creator, God gave them over. God gave them over. This is a, an active hardening. This is a, a, a judicial hardening of God. It's a serious, very serious thing to reject the truth of God. It's not without consequence. Now, I'm going to get to the rest of these objections next week. And I thank you, Pastor Sam, for allowing me to, to preach on this for two weeks. We'll get to verses 19 through 24 next week. But I want to just make a couple of suggestions before we leave today. Number one, as you, as you mull over this throughout the week, I, I just need to provide a, a, a caution about questioning the character of God. You know, questioning the character of God is exactly what the serpent got Eve to do in the garden. Did God really say and she said, well, yeah, he said this and he said that. But she didn't actually say what God actually said. And so you know what Satan then did? God didn't say that. In fact, here, I'll tell you why he doesn't want you to eat from that tree. He doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he knows that when you do, you'll be like him. He does not want to share his glory with you. He does not love you. It's the implication in that verse. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. He's trying to hold things back from you. You know the story of what happened after that. Eve looked at the tree, saw that it looked good for food. It was desired to make one wise. She took of it, ate of it, gave some to her husband who was with her. And they ate and they fell. That all happened because they questioned the character of God. I have to caution you against that. God is not unrighteous. No matter how this doctrine may make you feel, he is righteous and he is good. Secondarily, Remember that predestination never is used in reference to those who go to hell. God does not send people to hell whom he made for that specific purpose. He does not do that. However, God is also, this is the final thing that I'll say before we end today. God is, not, is also not obligated to give everyone the gift of eternal life. You know, I was, I was talking to a brother about this very thing. And um, he, he was struggling with just comprehending. He didn't question God or anything. He just like, I can't get this. He said, surely if God was willing to save me and if he did save me, well then surely he's gonna give that gift to the person down the road who's just as much a sinner as I am. And I said, you know what you've just done? You've just turned the gift of grace into a right that is deserved. If you own a billion dollars and you decided to give a few people in your church some of that money, would you be unjust in doing that? Would you be unjust to give a gift to a few people? No. Why? Because it's yours. It's your money. In the same way, we are all God's property and we're going to see this next time. God owns us. And it's a good thing that he owns us. He's a good master. And he has saved us. Why? Because he has ultimate free will and because he owns us. He can do what he wants with his creation. And we cannot question that. Nor can we call him unjust for choosing to give a gift to some and not all. Turn back to Romans 8. We'll end with this. I want, you to be, I want you to be strengthened in your faith, not disheveled. This doctrine is meant to be an encouragement to all believers. 
and it's meant to be a terror to unbelievers. Look at verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that there is nothing in creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray, church. Oh, Heavenly Father, God, these truths are weighty. I don't comprehend, but God, I trust. Lord, I pray, Lord God, that your flock would hear your voice and follow you. God, I pray, Lord, that you would give us mercy and compassion continually, for it is yours to give. It is yours to give based on how you want to give it. And you are the God of all creation. What can man say to you? What can we do but humble ourselves and cry out for mercy? God, I pray, Lord God, that if there's anyone in this room, Lord, that has been placing their hope in their own decision, if there's anyone in this room that has been placing their hope of eternal life in their own performance, God, I pray that you would smash those idolatrous ideas. God, I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who know that because you are gracious and merciful to those whom you will be gracious and merciful, therefore there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In his name we pray, amen.